hello, Mr. and Mrs. Bookcaser and all the ships at sea. It's good to see you again. I'm Charlie Gibson, the father of... Kate Gibson, who is sure you were bereft last week that there was no episode of the bookcase to which to turn. Yes, there were people out <laughs> in the streets <laughs> stopping me saying, where were you this yes. week? Where were you? No. <laughs> Either way, it's nice to be back and we're glad you're here. It caused a tsunami of concern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, now that we're back in business, a really interesting book for everyone to consider. The name of the book is Holiday Country. It is recently released. The name of the author is Inja Atrek. It is spelled I-N-C-I, her first name, A-T-R-E-K. And the name of the book is Holiday Country. And it would appear at first glance uh, to be something of a summer read a little early, coming in January. (laughs) But it's anything but. And both Kate and I, as we talked about this book, thought, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. Yeah, I mean, it's at first glance, it's, it's. I, I'd like to put it this way. If you knew a kid, and I feel like we all knew a kid, I knew a lovely young woman who spent her summers in Portugal, but lived in the US. And this is the story of a, a young woman who's doing that. She's in her early 20s. She spends her summers in Turkey with her mother, who's Turkish, born in Turkey. And they have a lot of attachment to her mother's mother, who's her grandmother, who still lives there. And she spends her summers there. And I think basically she starts to form an attachment to her mom's old boyfriend, a handsome sort of, you know, virile shark tooth, baby puka shell wearing kind of guy who hangs out at the swim club. And again, it's that may sound a little like the plot of an ABBA song, but it's the really deep book, I think, about a woman who has an identity that is torn between two countries and how she is finding herself in her early 20s. We're all finding ourselves in our early 20s anyway, but also making peace with your parents' past. But it's also a very intimate look at mothers and daughters and those relationships, which are very complex. Yes, Ada is feeling her oats. She is, for the first time, as you say, she's in her early 20s, student at Stanford, but she has come to Turkey as she has every summer because of her mother's Turkish background and because the grandmother is there, the grandmother who is very upset by the fact that uh, her daughter and granddaughter are not in Turkey. First of all, she's, for the first time, expressing her independence. She Mm. is breaking away from mom. Mm. Secondly, the way she's doing it, she knows as she does it, it's going to be terribly hurtful to her mother because she's taking up with her mother's old Turkish boyfriend. And she is trying to figure out this relationship as mother is trying to figure out her relationship with Ada. And the grandmother's just running around saying, why aren't you here? Why don't you come here? Why don't you spend your time in Turkey? But it's also, I think, an intimate glimpse into Ada's mother with her grandmother. Like, yes, yes, her grandmother is sort of a controlling, why aren't you here? And it's terrible to be separated from your family and you should call more. Yes. But she's also a very complex character with a lot of depth to her. At one point, one character says, I think her control of people is the only way she knows how to love. So even... That relationship, I think, is it could be very one-dimensional, very surface, and yet you get a very intimate glimpse, I think, into Ada's mother's relationship with her mother and how complex that is and how she's expressing her own independence or not expressing her own independence in her country of origin. It is three generations 
working out their relationship, mm -hmm. which they can only do during these summers. But also importantly, Ada is uncertain of who she is. Mm -hmm. She has this fantasy that if she can be in Turkey, everything will be better. Everyone will know how to pronounce her name. Everyone will be more understanding of her background than living in California, which is where she is at college. So there's so many different levels going on in this. Mm -hmm. There's the relationship of the daughter, mother, grandmother. Hmm. There's also her coming of age and beginning to express her independence, her frustration with her mother, that her mother really never did express her independence, mm -hmm. her relationship with this man, which is hurtful to her mother, terribly hurtful, and also terribly hurtful to her grandmother. And then she's trying to figure out who she is. Mm -hmm. Am I Turkish? Am I American? Gee, things would be better in Turkey. But of course, they won't. But she doesn't realize that. So there's a lot of different themes in this book, Holiday Country. And Katie, I think you made the point that it is an easy book to overlook. Yeah. I, You know, for me, when I read the back and it's, I thought, oh, I'm not even, I wasn't sure how comfortable I was going to be with the plot of a daughter falling in love with her mother's old boyfriend. And I thought to myself, this could either be sort of creepy or it could be a romance novel. Either way, it sounds like it may not be for me. You said an ABBA song? Yes. <laughs> I, I, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting analogy. I just keep picturing Mamma Mia in my head. Right. But it isn't. Like I say, there's a lot of depth to this book. And and it's really worth exploring. She's a first-time author. It took her 10 years to write it, and we'll find out why. But it's a really good book, and we recommend picking it up. Yeah, it is a very good book. And as you say, first-time author, I always have great admiration for people who, who it's gutsy. Yeah. It's gutsy to put a novel out there. It's your work. As you said, she worked on this for 10 years, and she'll, you'll hear her say she spent many, 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 many drafts <laughs> of making this come to reality. The book, again, is Holiday Country, the author Inja Atrek. And here's our conversation. Inja Atrek, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And this is an auspicious day for you. I will let the audience in on a little secret. We're talking to you, even though the book will have been out for a while by the time people hear this. This is the day, the day that your book is being released. And I can't imagine what kind of nerves that would engender in someone. Are, are you nervous on this day of debut? No, I, I'm not nervous at all. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, we have the launch tonight and, and my family and my friends are going to be there. I also have been severely jet lagged for the past few days. So I didn't have too much time to kind of build up, you know, any, any nervousness. I'm only kind of coming to realize and, and processing what's happening now. That was my next question is, did you sleep last night? So that's really, really great. You know, my father uh, called me uh, when he finished the book and he said, did you look at the acknowledgements? She, she wrote this over 10 years. And so I want to give you a chance to talk about that process. 10 years. Yes. Yes. 10 years. I get so happy when I hear, uh, you know, debut writers on other podcasts it also took them a decade. So uh, <laughs> yes, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I studied English and creative writing in undergraduate. And then I started working in corporate. And in I graduated in 2010. And in 2013, I believe, we had this a big whiteboard uh, around our cubicles where our team was encouraged to write down just personal goals that they had so we could all hold each other accountable. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take my dream to write a novel seriously. So on the board, I wrote, I'm going to write and finish my novel. 
And I worked on that novel, which was not Holiday Country, for about four years. It wasn't really getting to the point I wanted to get it to. I remember looking at it and saying like, okay, this is not the story that I want to tell. I took a break for a year and I went to grad school. And when I graduated, I looked at the manuscript and I thought, okay, we're going to have to start over. But is there anything in here that was fun to write and you really love? Like anything we can take from this. And there was one chapter that took place in Ivaluk. So the story was still a mother-daughter story, but it was very different. And it all took place in Istanbul. Just one chapter that took place in Ivaluk. So I said, okay, we're going to take this chapter that takes place in the summer town and we're going to build a whole new story around it. Uh, so I worked on that for a few years and it was much better. And then I found my agent, I think, in winter of 2021. And we sold it in spring of 2022. You did something that a lot of especially new time writers would find very intimidating, which is you spent years on something and then we're like, going to throw that away and start something new based on a kernel of something that you liked. I mean, that that must have been very difficult for you. I mean, you're talking about it now, like, and then, you know, but how did you know you were writing something that wasn't working? And then when you sat down to write Holiday Country, how did you know it was working? Oh, well, for the manuscript that wasn't working, I just knew I didn't care anymore about making it better. I was mm. like, I, I just, I can't take you. Even if I made it the best manuscript it would possibly be, it wasn't the story I wanted to tell. And when I started writing Holiday Country, I think, well, you get a very different reaction from your early readers. For Kate and me, this has become sort of a masterclass in writing. Mm -hmm. And so many first-time authors have said their first readers are so important. Was it your first readers who told you this wasn't working or just you know inside yourself mm -hmm. this isn't working and I need to go in this direction instead? No, my first readers were very honest with me. It's very important to have <laughs> <and> very <laughs> honest readers because they also, they they were people who believed in me and knew that if I worked at it, I could eventually tell a good story and they wanted to read that good story. I wanted to believe it was working, but uh, when a few people tell you the same thing over again, you have to accept the truth. So yes, they were very honest with me. I was less honest with myself, but then I finally gave in. In 10 years, how many drafts? Oh, you can't, you can't put a number on that at all. <laughs> I mean, there were two majorly different stories. And then uh, things just, uh, huge things just changed over and over and over again. Double digits, maybe triple. So many first time writers have told us they know where they're going to end and they write to that end. Some say they don't know where their novel is going to finish up. Others say the beginning is the hard part because you want to engage the reader right away. I, what did you struggle with the most? Beginning, middle, end, what? I have no idea what the end is going to be when I write. Mm. I can't imagine what something like that would look like. And, and because I write to kind of answer my own questions that I have, if I knew the end, then I, I wouldn't have that question in the first place. I think I, yes, so the ending is it's not even something that I would say I struggle with. I just know I have to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, get to the wrong ending, and then you know, rewrite the story all over again. I think for beginning, the hard part about that is figuring out exactly where the story starts. And I think early readers can give you a very good sense of that. They can say, oh, actually, the story starts, you know, on 
on this page, not here. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of like actual struggle, like I'm at the computer just kind of with my head in my hands is the middle. <laughs> we were talking about a masterclass on writing. So many writing teachers say the same thing that it's become a cliche, write what you know. So I'm interested. It's always sort of a cliche question. How much of your personal identity did you have to bring to this story? You know, did you have a dual childhood this way, you know, winter's here somewhere, somewhere else. And is that ultimately what helped shepherd your story through that difficult point, bringing more of yourself to the story? Yes. I mean, I spent my, I spent three months out of the year on the West coast of Turkey at my grandmother's house on the seaside. So that is definitely from my life. Uh, So I'm Turkish American. I have two nationalities and I wrote this because I was really struggling with kind of my relationship with these two countries and, you know, being uncomfortable when I felt I didn't fit in or missing one place over the other. And I would say that like emotionally and kind of the questions that are raised and explored in the story very much come from myself. I was very tired of exploring them on my own. So I just wrote a character and put her in a situation and had her go figure it out for me. Hmm. Did you come to this country at a certain age or have you always lived in the United States? and just have the Turkish background? So I was born in the United States. And then when I was, I think, 26, I started living abroad. So I lived in a few different countries. And since 2019, I've been living in Istanbul. Mm. Mm. This is a very complex book with, with, I say, several themes. A college girl struggling with separation from her mother, struggling with her own identity, with her own independence, which might not be easy for a girl of Turkish background. And then struggling with her grandmother and looking at her own mother's relationship with her mother. There are a lot of themes, and I wonder how you envisioned those as you went through the book and how much you were thinking, I've got to make this relationship seem real, because they certainly did to me, the reader. I'm so happy to hear that. I think the one relationship that I spent the most time trying to get right is the mother-daughter relationship, because that's really, you know, Ada is uh, born in America and her mother is, is Turkish, but lives in America. So Ada's, our main character's kind of relationship with her country is really wrapped up in her relationship with her mother. So as much as it is a story about kind of identity and belonging, it is also a story about mother-daughter dynamics because they are incredibly intertwined. Well, and this, as you say, you brought some of your identity to this story. Is your mother still with us? Yeah. Has she read it? Yes, she has. Uh, she really enjoyed it. Was that scary? Tell me what that process was like. Like, I'm just <laughs> thinking about writing an entire book about mother-daughter relationships and then handing the manuscript over to my mother. <laughs> no, I mean, my mother loves literature. Yeah, I, when it was at a place where it was done, actually, it was after I sold it. So we were kind of locked in at that <laughs> point. But she had she had read my previous book, the manuscript that didn't make it, which was also mother daughter. And, you know, her comments were all about just the writing and the storytelling and the characters and, you know, making sure that uh, their actions were believable. So she, she really can see it from a, from a literary level. And then for this one, I was like, Oh, Hey, this book is going to come out 
your friends might ask you questions and think it's about you. So maybe you should just read it. She's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you I like that you had her read it after you sold it. So it's a little bit like, gee, mom, I sold it. You wouldn't want to displease my publisher. This is my living, you know? That's what I'm saying. No, no. She she would never she would never do anything like that. But but she she knew I was working on it and I, I would talk to her about it. I don't think this is a spoiler. I hope it's not. But Ada, the daughter, does something that could be well, that is tremendously hurtful to her mother Mm -hmm. as a way of establishing independence, as a way of separating herself from her mother, but also expressing her own independence in her life. And that comes to a conclusion, I thought, very well resolved. But at the end, you say, my mother and I take our last walk together along the sea. We are not speaking to each other, not yet, but we have reached a tacit agreement. It is this, When both of us are ready, we will see the betrayals for the declarations of love that they were. That's a tough thing to get across. And that's a really beautiful sentence, I think. Do you feel at the end that you so well resolved the relationship between mother and daughter? I'm really happy with where the characters ended up. I think that given everything that happened... I couldn't expect them to be at, you know, a further point so quickly in their relationship. I think that's a point that I, I wanted to end it at. And um, parent-child relationships can, I think, withstand, uh, withstand a lot. I was just thinking that in some ways I love that line because it encapsulates, doesn't matter what I do to you. It doesn't matter what you do to me. You're still going to be my mom. You're still going to be my mm-hmm. dad. Yep. Also, I'm, I'm curious as to which was the hardest character for you to write. Daughter, mother, grandmother. In terms of the grandmother, you say, you know, you say, I I think controlling the people around her is the only way she knows how to love. And I thought, that's a tough character to write, that grandmother. Which character did you have the most trouble with? The character that was the most difficult to write was the mother because the book is written from others' perspective. And so her mother's character is mostly how she sees her mother and perhaps not necessarily exactly what her mother is like. So trying to get the reader to understand how much of this character is based on other's own perspective and how much of this character is, um, you know, actually her true essence, I think was uh, something I worked on a lot. Ultimately, do you feel, do you feel like this book helped you reconcile? Like, was this book a form of therapy for you? Did it help you reconcile your two identities? And do you feel at peace with that now, having gone through this process over 10 years? 100%. 100%. I think that I wrote it to kind of explore the questions that I had. I had no idea how it would end. And I was telling my friend that I'm very happy with the story. And it'll kind of sit on my shelf as this like little component of my life that has been explored. Ada has this fantasy that everything's going to be better in Turkey, that she will be someplace where everybody knows how to pronounce her name and everybody will understand her background. Does that fantasy, as she refers to it, ever occur to you that maybe maybe things would be better if I were back in the land of my, of my heritage? Did it ever occur to me that everything might be better for my life if I lived in Turkey? Mm-hmm. So no, not like that. But I think that one thing that's maybe not directly talked about in other story, but for me, it's not necessarily that I would say like, oh, things would be better if, you know, I lived here full time or if I lived there full time. 
But I think when you have your character is kind of made up of different components of different cultures. So sometimes it's very hard for people to know what to expect of you. So for example, if you speak a language fluently and understand kinds of nuances and the idioms, but then you don't maybe act in the way that that culture kind of expects you to act, then people get very taken aback. And so sometimes I think like, oh, if I only lived in one place, then at least my character would be consistent. And I would, you know, do things the way someone like me is expected to do things or respond in the way I'm expected to respond. And people just wouldn't be so confused about who I am all the time. Mm. So that, that is something that I, I thought about a lot. Mm. I think you resolve the themes that we've talked about so very well in this book. And we wish you great luck. First time authors deserve every bit of support they can get. So we're going to take a pause. We'll get to the rapid fire questions in just a moment. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. fire questions for Inja Atrek. So what did you do when you knew you were finished? When you typed the end, what was the first thing you did? Oh, I typed the end so many times, uh, but it was probably to send it to to one of my early readers. (laughs) It took you 10 years to write your first book. How long is your second going to take you? I don't know, but I'm being very easy on myself. (laughs) So... So it's, um, uh, well, hopefully shorter. I think it takes one book to, it takes 10 years to learn how to write a book. And then uh, hopefully it gets shorter from then on. In the end, was the 10-year process a joy to go through? Or would you advise a first-time novelist, beware, you can't imagine what you're getting yourself into? Oh, that's so funny. Uh, I would definitely let them know that it's going to take a long time if they want to, you know, create work that they're proud of. I would not say that writing for 10 years and not knowing if it was ever going to work out was a joy, but I tend to really go after things that are incredibly rewarding. And this has been the absolute most rewarding thing that I have done in my entire life. So I would say that if you're interested in 
you know, having that feeling, then you should go for it. You said you always knew you wanted to be a writer. Yes. Was there a book, a sort of gateway drug for you that made you think, boy, I would love to do this? You know, people have been asking me that. And really, I I don't remember reading a book in my childhood that was like, wow, this is so magical. It's completely changed my life and I, I want to do this. But what did make a really huge impact on me was my dad because he collects kind of rare and first edition books. And you know, even now in our house, there's this bookcase of my dad's books that like no one is allowed to touch because they're so old and so rare. So when I was a kid, it wasn't really any particular story, I think, that made me want to be a writer, but just realizing how important and special and sacred books were uh, made me really fall in love with them. Did he collect books that were in Turkish? Uh, yes, he collects books in all languages. The last book you read that really moved you, that you think, boy, I would love to have written that. I don't ever really think I would have loved to have written that because, you, you know, I, I feel like the stories we choose to tell are so, so personal. But one book whose storytelling and ending just absolutely stunned me uh, that I read last year was uh, Tess Gunty's The Rabbit Hutch. I thought it was... It was just so excellent. And mm. it had that feeling you get, the feeling you want to get when you finish a book, which is just like, oh, God, wow. <laughs> and very satisfying. So after a decade, today is the day of your release for mm -hmm. anybody who is at home struggling with their own first time writing. Any piece of advice for how you got to today? When I started in 2013, I made myself two promises. So my first promise was that I was not going to give up no matter what. And then my second promise was that I would be okay, just completely okay with it if I ever thought that someone would see me as kind of silly or a fool or, oh, this is like not good writing. No. And be because I knew I would have that fear and I would just have to say, Oh, but I decided I was okay with this fear, so moving on. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting with us today. Thank you. We wish you very well with this book, Holiday Country. It's worth a read. It is. It really is. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I had such a great time. We've been away not only for a week, but we've been away for some time now from talking to bookstore owners and managers. I miss it, but we have a wonderful bookstore owner today. The bookstore is The Flying Pig. Now, there's got to be a story behind that name. And the owner of the store is Elizabeth Blumley. Uh, the store is in Shelburne, Vermont. She has, one of the things I have found in bookstore owners is such enthusiasm. If it's not monetarily rewarding, it certainly gives you psychic rewards. And that engenders the kind of enthusiasm that I think Elizabeth Blumley expresses so well. So, from Shelburne, Vermont, Elizabeth Blumley, the owner of The Flying Pig. Elizabeth Blumley of The Flying Pig Bookstore in Shelburne, Vermont. Elizabeth, I got to start. The name, where did it come from, and why? 
The name popped into my head after we came home from a senior corps of retired executives meeting where we had told the person we met with that the name was the, going to be Charlotte's Web because we were opening as a children's bookstore in a town called Charlotte. And I was so annoyed even <laughs> explaining it that I thought I cannot get through a career calling it Charlotte's Web. So that was out of play. And I was thinking about a toy store in New York City. I used to live in New York that I loved called Penny Whistle Toys. And Penny Whistle Toys was such a child appealing, fun name. And at the time we were a children's only bookstore. And I, I thought what would be immediately appealing to kids and Flying Pig popped into my head, and then I immediately loved it because it sounded like, you know, it's the symbol of an impossible dream. We had moved from New York City to a town of 3,500 people living at the end of a dirt road. It was ridiculous to open a bookstore, but this little space had become available, and it was up for lease. It was the only business entity in Charlotte except for a little deli, and I thought, this can't be an office. It has to become a community gathering space. I want to start with talking about how one opens a bookstore specifically for kids. How did that start for you? Well, I had immediately before that, when I lived in New York, I had been a children's librarian at this great little progressive private school called City and Country. And I loved it. And the kids came into that library every day for sustained silent reading, for research. It was incredible. So I knew books. I knew children's books really well. I never can remember a time in my life when I couldn't read. I loved reading. And that was where my passion lay, was with kids and books and teaching. And, and that was fine with my partner, who also loved all kinds of books, not children's books specifically, but uh, but she later got to get her serial killer novels in. <laughs> I want to get to that story in a minute, but yes, keep going. We opened with 6,500 books and we grew to be about 30,000 books. So 6,500 books that I had sort of hand selected, my favorites, and I was up on the new ones. And then Josie, who co-opened the store with me, was meeting with the people doing, you know, we picked paint colors and she dealt with all the fit up for the building. And I can't believe that we managed to open the store <laughs> in 10 weeks from idea to opening day, but we didn't want to miss the holiday season. We had all the energy and foolishness of youth. It was you know, ignorance can be a, a bonus when it comes to that. We, I went down to a library in central Vermont that <laughs> actually had a book on how to open a bookstore. <laughs> And I photocopied all the pages. You couldn't buy this book. It was out of print, but I photocopied all the pages I could. I think we, I, we went into it quickly, but we went into it small. And I think that was a saving grace because we didn't over inventory for the space that we had. We had no idea how to budget because we didn't know how many people would come in. I mean, it was crazy. I would not recommend it, especially in this day and age. Well, I was going to ask, I was going to ask, before you go any further, is it because your partner came to you and said, have you ever considered a serial killer bookshelf for the children? How did those books start to invade the consciousness of, of the children's section? <laughs> no, that would be a great story, though. I like that. I, I might I might pretend that's what happened. But what really happened was the parents who came in with their kids <laughs> wanted books, too. And we started stocking our favorites. And in her case, yeah. that was serial yeah, killer yeah, books. Sure. Um, and, 
Uh, and you know, hey, everybody needs their fun, their their fun stuff. So then it outgrew the little section we had allocated for adult books, and we had some stacks of books on the floor that we started to call Towers of Knowledge. And it was when the Towers of Knowledge started taking over the nook. You have like a McDonald's drive-in window. I gather there's a window oh. on the side of the store, <laughs> and instead of, instead of handing out uh, hamburgers and French fries, uh, you you can have people uh, t- pick up their books at the window. So we did. We've only done that sort of twice in our career. There, we did it during we had a gargantuan party for the last Harry Potter book, and so we had 1,500 people there, and we were handing books out the window in exchange for their little golden tickets for the books, and so I remembered that event when COVID struck and we had to close the store down. And I thought, well, we can just do business at the window and not have people have to come into a small space and risk COVID. So for 444 days, we sold out of the side window and the front door, we kind of blocked with a cart and people could browse. We would put a bunch of books that people could browse on the (laughs) cart at the front door. And it was a saving grace. We would not still be here if we hadn't had our little takeout window that we could use. And the other thing I so admire is you are an author yourself of children's books. And I noticed that one of them, I just love the name. How do you waka waka? How do you waka waka? (laughs) Hey, in your own unique way is how everybody waka wakas. Yeah, that book came to me because my nephew, when he, who's now 24, uh, when he was a two-year-old, he started asking us that question. And they didn't have a TV, so I know there was some Sesame Street character who would say waka waka, 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 waka or right. something, but he had never seen that character. So we don't know where it came from, but he would ask us and his, we thought like, do you mean how do we walk? And he would shake his head. And then his mom, who was very tall and skinny, like a flamingo, did this really funny arm gesture. And she said, I waka waka like this. And he cracked up. And so then all of us had to make up our own waka waka to amuse him. I always want to end by giving booksellers, because I know how addictive it is selling books. And you, I'm going to give two opportunities to sell books. I want you to sell me a book and I want you to sell me a children's book that you're excited about right now. Okay, so for the adult book, I am a proselytizer for Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya's Chain Gang All-Stars. I don't know if you've read it yet. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. He is an incredible writer. This is a book I've been waiting for for six or seven years after his short story collection, Friday Black. He is a brilliant, fresh voice. And when you've sold books for 27 years, it's very exciting to come across a unique talent. He is just an electrifying writer. His prose is propulsive, but also he is the most humane thinker. And this book, Chain Gang All-Stars, is about a near future where the prison system has created a gladiatorial death match to ostensibly offer life sentence prisoners their freedom. And it's like a world wrestling entertainment type of thing, but it's a death match. So that is, I think, was the best book of 2023. For adults, for kids, I really loved, and I don't only read books that deal with social issues, but I do care about them a lot. And there's a Vermont high school principal who wrote a book called Gather that was also a National Book Award finalist this year, debut novel. And it is about a a high school kid navigating his mom's addiction to opioids. And it's done in such a real and graceful 
and compassionate way. And it came out of his experiences working with so many kids um, at his high school who were dealing with these very, very big real life quandaries and trying to navigate life the best they can. And he does it just beautifully. So those are two of my favorites. Elizabeth Lumley, it is a pleasure to talk to you. A woman who can work miracles, who can, with no experience, (laughs) decide to open a bookstore. And 10 weeks later, it's in business. She's in Shelburne, Vermont. You find her right on Shelburne Road in the big yellow house. An inviting bookstore, to be sure. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a delight. Elizabeth Blumley from The Flying Pig. Kate, often after we've talked to a bookstore owner, you say on the podcast, gee, I can't wait to visit that bookstore. I think you got a list of about 30 now that you have to visit. <laughs> but in this instance... Kate, when she after we talked to her, said nothing about visiting the bookstore. She said, "I just want to, I want to figure out how to walk a walker. How do you walk a walker?" Like I said, I think it requires some deep thought. I think we all need to reflect on this for a minute. Like, I think we really need to consider the words and think about what in our life really represents the waka waka. What do we bring? How do we bring ourselves to the waka waka? How do we express ourselves? Does it involve full body movement? Is it just from the waist up? Is it arms? Is it? Is there a head movement involved? I don't know. Do you have to continually say waka waka? I don't know, but this, I'm going to be investigating this. And and as I say, it's going to require investigation. So thank you, Elizabeth Blumbling for that. Rather than just visit the bookstore, you're going to go out and buy that book by Elizabeth Blumbling. Absolutely. (laughs) I just saying it makes me laugh. I know. But I also have to say one of the things I love most about talking to bookstore owners is that when they make recommendations for books, I often run out and go buy them. And we often find some terrific reads in them. They really put their heart and souls into when we say, sell us a book uh they sell me usually yeah um, but then again, yeah. I, I i'm addicted to books so anyway a reminder of the great folks that make this podcast possible and then a final thought from inja Archek. the bookcase is a production of abc audio in partnership with good morning america it is produced by david canada in conjunction with sure can productions asal asanapur is our producer laura mayer and simone swink are our executive producers We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas-Baker at ABC Audio. I think one quote that really meant a lot to me and uh, also led to this book is this, this is quote by the poet Rumi, and it's, when you are everywhere, you are nowhere. When you are somewhere, you are everywhere. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.